It is really fun to be here. Baptists do everything new. Everything is new and clean and shiny. And um, you have to know that I, li I live in a world where everything is 250 years old. Um, I teach at Princeton Seminary, and it's like I I'm on another planet right now. Um, and I'm really grateful to be here, partly because um, one of my former colleagues at Princeton is now with you, Angela Reed. And partly because Amy has been a dear friend for many years now as we've tried to navigate this um, world of practical theology and youth ministry together. Um, you should know that Truett Seminary has an incredible ambassador in Amy Jacober. Um, she presented um, research that she had done at the International Association for the Study of Youth Ministry in Cape Town, South Africa, or in Pretoria, South Africa in January. Um, you are known the world over for the kind of research that is being done and the kind of um, pastoral training that's being done in the area of practical theology and youth ministry, thanks to Dr. Amy Jacober. So let's pray. Gracious God, you know better than we do what we need this morning. So just take over here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to start with an exercise in hermeneutics. Put your finger up in the air. Okay. You're in a seminary, you know what hermeneutics is, right? So here, see if this will help you teach it to others. Wait, pretend that there's a clock on the ceiling, all right? And trace your finger around the outside of that clock going clockwise. That's to the right, okay? Yeah, okay? So your finger's tracing the outside of that clock going clockwise. Now don't change anything except slowly bring your finger down below your nose. Okay, now which way is your finger going? Counterclockwise. It's a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> so why is that? What's the difference? <laughs> I know, I'm looking at you going, yeah, what's the difference? For your perspective. And this is what hermeneutics means. Where you sit determines what you see. That's all it means. What we are trying to do in Christian formation with young people is to help them see the facts of their lives, to help them see themselves from God's side of the clock, right? The facts of their lives are pretty much the same, but the reality is entirely different when you see yourself from God's side of the clock, right? But there's a problem with this, and that is that the most recent research that's been done in adolescent faith formation tells us that young people are not learning to see their lives from God's side of the clock in American churches. In fact, their involvement in American Christianity is not helping them change much of anything at all. And so what happens is, most of the time, youth ministry in congregations really serves a purpose that's more like this. This is a PlayStation 2 commercial. Watch. Training fleas requires a glass jar with a lid. The fleas are placed inside the jar, and the lid is then sealed. They are left undisturbed for three days. Then, when the jar is opened, the fleas will not jump out. In fact, the fleas will never jump higher than the level set by the lid. Their behavior is now set for the rest of their lives. And when these fleas reproduce, their offspring will automatically follow their example. So now what you get to do is turn to the person beside you 
and just for like two minutes, we're going to do a brainstorm session. Talk about your congregation. Do they expect youth ministry to train fleas? Go. This is a whetting of the appetite, not a full conversation. But this morning, what we're going to talk about is what the mirror is holding up to us as a church from the research that's being done on the spirituality of adolescence. And we're going to look at what the National Study of Youth and Religion in particular is telling us as a church in terms of the spiritual health of our communities. Um, if you are in Dr. Jacober's class, you already know the National Study of Youth and Religion pretty well. Um, it was the largest study of youth and religion that's ever been conducted. And we looked at, I was one of the researchers on the project. We looked at 3,300 kids and their parents through phone interviews, and then we interviewed about 300 of them face to face. And um, just, I know some of you are familiar with it, but just so we can have five minutes to get everybody on the same page here, I'm going to summarize the five findings that are going to be most useful for our conversation. But let me frame it by saying this. The significance of the National Study of Youth and Religion is not what it found out about young people. What they found out about youth will not surprise anybody who's ever worked with a teenager, okay? The significance is in the fact that it reframed the issues of youth and youth ministry as issues of the entire church. In other words, what we're, when we're talking about our young people, we're not talking about the youth's problems. We're talking about ourselves. Here's what I mean. Okay, five minutes on the five findings most important to our conversation. Number one, teenagers... No, we're not there yet. Go back one. There we go. Nope, there. That's good. Teenagers are not hostile about religion. That's the good news. And that surprised the sociologists who were involved in the study because they expected to find all this all fighting in families and lots of arguing about what religion was for and about and whether I wanted it or not. And none of that turned out to be true. The bad news is the reason why teenagers aren't hostile towards religion. Why aren't they hostile? Because they don't care. You only fight about things that you care about, right? And religion isn't significant enough for most of them to even make the radar. So now Chris, Christian Smith, who's the lead researcher, had this famous quotation to summarize the findings. Most religious communities' central problem is not teen rebellion, but teenagers' benign whateverism. Okay? Second finding. Teenagers mirror their parents' religious faith to an astonishing degree. In other words, we get what we are. That sounds great until you realize what shape most parents' faith is in. And then it gets a little scarier. Okay? Third finding. There's an almost complete lack of theological language among teenagers. The phrase used in the study is that teenagers are incredibly inarticulate about religion. Now you're thinking, teenagers just grunt anyway. How do you expect them to be articulate? But if you've worked with teenagers, you know, and it was borne out in the study as well, they're very articulate, very able to speak with nuance on a range of complex subjects, especially things they've covered in school. Anything from, you know, politics to money to, um, you know, sex to uh, anything that has to do with social um, issues. Uh, but, but religion is like the null curriculum. It just isn't part of the conversation, and so they don't have a language for it. Most kids could say one theological word. You know what it was? God. And sometimes they could say it without swearing, right? Uh, but one of the biggest problems teenagers had was talking about Jesus. Kids would shut down if the conversation started turning to Jesus in particular. Um, there were exceptions to this. 
Um, the, in particular, Mormons, conservative Protestants, and black Protestants had an easier time talking about Jesus. The kids that had the most difficult time talking about Jesus were mainline Protestants um, and Roman Catholics, um, but particularly mainline Protestants. And I think it has to do with the iconography in our churches, right? You know, when, if you're Catholic, you at least have pictures of Jesus hanging on a cross around. Um, but the bottom line is um, we've got a real problem. If you don't have a language about faith, you can't really frame your life in categories of faith. All right. Fourth finding. A minority of young people do think religion is important, but it's a significant minority. Forty percent say religion matters to them and that they make decisions in their lives based upon um, their religious faith. Um, now, the problem, of course, is if you push that number, we found that only 8% of the teenagers in the study, 1 in 12, fell in a category that sociologists called highly devoted. Okay? Highly devoted means basically you go to church, you're involved maybe in a youth group or a, a camp or something, you pray without being told to, um, you try to make your faith influence your decisions on a daily life. These are the kids we hope for, right? And people who are pastors go, wait a minute, 8%? Surely that can't be right. I know all of these great kids. Well, yeah, that's because these are the kids that we, we see, right? We are really good at addressing 8% of American teenagers. The other 92%, not so much. In order of religious significance, here's how it played out. Religion was most significant in order for Mormons, conservative Protestants, black Protestants. Mainline, there was a gap then, mainline Protestants, Catholic kids, and then another gap, Jewish youth and non-religious kids are at the bottom. Why are Jewish kids at the bottom? Right, because sometimes when you're Jewish, you don't even think about it as a religious identity. It's a cultural identity, right? So a lot of kids who were Jewish didn't understand themselves to be religious at all, okay? Last finding, the most significant finding, and it's the one we'll spend the rest of our time dealing with, and it's related to the fact that 60%, the majority of teenagers, found religion to be inconsequential. Um, most of them um, fell into the mainline Protestant Roman Catholic pro um, category, but you could find these kids in every religious tradition, and you know kids that will fall into this from your own congregation or your own neighborhood. It's not that they don't have a common faith, they do. But it's not a religion any of us would recognize, and they don't even recognize that it's operative in their lives, even though it's a powerful compass. The study called this default religious position of most American teenagers moralistic therapeutic deism, okay? Which basically means religion helps you do good, makes you, helps you be nice, helps you feel good, helps you feel good about yourself, and otherwise God stays out of the way. God's in the, in the background. They actually were able to tease out some of the main tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism in what kids were telling us, and here's how it, it worked out. If you're a moralistic therapeutic deist, here's what you believe. Number one, God exists and created and ordered the world and watches over life on earth, so there's no problem with thinking God exists. Number two, God wants us to be good, nice, and fair to each other, which is what they think most world religions teach. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Four, God doesn't need to be involved in my life unless I need God to call, to call upon God if I have a problem. Kids tended to think about God in terms of either the cosmic um, butler, the, the, yeah, the cosmic butler or the divine therapist, you know, those were the two images, which means God didn't always come when God was called, and that was very annoying to a lot of teenagers. Um, and finally, good people like good dogs go to heaven when they die, Okay. 
looks kind of Christian-ish on the outside, doesn't it? You can probably understand where they get this idea. But now I want to show you why it is deviant from the historic teachings of Christianity. Now I got to ask this. <laughs> I have a slide just in case. Do Baptists do, uh, recite the Apostles' Creed ever? Okay, so I put it up here. The Apostles' Creed's like a summary of, you know, the basic, the, this is just, we're not even going to go all the way through it. You know, I, Methodists aren't creedal Christians either, but we, we say this, I'm a Methodist, and we say this in church a lot, so most people have it memorized, but you know, you never know these days. So anyway, just say that this has been around like a summary of what Christians believe since the second century. So let's just say this this much, and then we'll stop and we'll compare, okay? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose from the dead. Okay, and it goes on from there. You, you get where this is headed. All right, so what's the difference between what we just read and moralistic therapeutic deism? Just throw some things out that you see that are different. Theocentric, it's about God, right? Right, right. That's the one that I notice most, you know? Who is the Apostles' Creed about? It's about God. Who's moralistic therapeutic deism about? It's about me, right? So moralistic therapeutic deism amounts to a self-serving spirituality. And so, the, you know, the question is how did we allow this self-serving thing to supplant Christianity. Here's the kicker. The sociologist in this study, Christian Smith and his colleagues, are not content to leave moralistic therapeutic deism to teenagers. Remember the correlation between teenagers' faith and their parents' faith. They mirror their parents' faith to an astonishing degree. So what does that mean? It means, and this is a quote from Christian Smith, moralistic therapeutic deism is now, what he believes, the dominant religion in the United States having supplanted Christianity in American churches. That's huge. In other words, young people do not practice moralistic therapeutic deism because they have misunderstood what we've taught them in church, right? They practice it because this is what we've taught them in church. So here's a question to think about. Is your congregation being colonized by moralistic therapeutic deism? Are you a moralistic therapeutic deist? Now, obviously, this is not a new question for us. This is our culture's version of acculturated Christianity that's been around forever. Um, the book that I wrote that summarizes what, uh, um, some of these things is called Almost Christian, which is a title that's ripped off from a, a sermon John Wesley gave in 1738 to a congregation a lot like this one, was university students and professors from Oxford. Um, so the question is, how did we allow this self, this me-centered spirituality to supplant Christianity in the first place? Now, you could think of a lot of complex reasons for this. I, I got captured by one possibility, I guess. And so the, the possibility that caught my attention was this. It seems to me that in the United States, we have lost track of what I've come to call the church's missional imagination. 
What that means is the ability to imagine the church as being here for anybody other than ourselves. Okay? In other words, mission is not a trip. Okay? It's the identity of the church. Mission is the business we are in. And that includes young people. If you don't have mission, you don't have a church. Okay? But exercising a missional imagination means that we embody and we help young people embody God's passionate and overflowing love for anybody God places on our path. And unless we reclaim a missional imagination, I think all the church can be about is training fleas. Part of what I think got us into trouble is I think we've gotten in a habit of thinking about ministry and mission in a way that's a little bit distorted. I think we've somehow gotten the idea that this is what um, mission is. Okay, so this is God's grace. This is us, and this is the world. We are, everybody with me so far? All right. I'm Methodist, so we never start completely on empty here. So... Um, only seminaries get that. You know, churches have no idea what that's about. All right. All right, so here's what we think we have, mission is like. We're like, okay, we have to, we stand before God and, get, and we, get, we get ourselves some of God's grace. And then what do we do? We look around and we go dump Jesus on somebody. Okay? And then, but now we got a problem. We're empty again. All right, so now what do we have to do? We got to go back. All right, all right, well, I'll stand before God again. I'll get me some grace, and now I'm going to go dump Jesus on somebody. Well, now, look what happened. Okay, well, there are a million things wrong with this, right? Let's start with the fact it's exhausting. You know, you're always running back and forth, emptying yourself out, and, and we wonder why, you know, pastors get burned out so fast. Okay, I think we might have a more accurate way to think about mission if we thought about it something like this, okay? Yes, we do place ourselves before God, and God does... Fill us with God's grace, but God never knows when to quit. God just keeps giving and giving and pouring and pouring grace upon grace until grace splatters off of us and splashes into the world from us, from the church, so that God's grace through the church splashes onto the world, which means our job is not to go dump Jesus, but to be close enough to the people who need to get wet. That's what mission is, because God's grace just doesn't know when to quit. Now, this requires us to shift some of the metaphors that we use when we talk about mission. In other words, for churches not to be in mission is impossible. The Christian tradition is filled with metaphors about the inseparability of grace and mission. You know, the burning bush burns but is not consumed. We're ignited but not used up. Emil Bruner talks about the church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. Wesley talked about being impossible to, be, to know God's grace without sharing it. He said, as the spirit of God is continually received by faith, so it's continually rendered back in love. It's a rhythm like breathing. You can't receive the breath of God without needing to exhale it into the world. Everybody hold your breath for a second. <gasps> Okay, now you've got the breath of God. What do you got to do? Right. Exhale. Exhale. It's as impossible for the church not to be in mission as it is not to breathe. God's love exceeds our ability to hold it all. 
And so it flows through us into the world around us. But if mission isn't about dumping Jesus on people, what is it about? And I'm going to borrow a metaphor from a missiologist named Andrew Walls, who talks about mission as translation. This is a hermeneutical move, right? Translation doesn't add something new to the conversation that's not already there, not good translation anyway, right? It makes accessible a conversation that's already going on. It makes it accessible to people on the margins, so people on the outside of the conversation, people who don't understand it. As we, when we think about um, trans, uh, mission as adding something to people's lives, as giving them Jesus, as if Jesus were ours to give, as if Jesus were a family heirloom we get to pass on, it, it shifts our attention away from the fact that Jesus is already at work in the world, is already at work with young people, whether we are on the case or not. The question is whether we can help people understand that this is where God is at work in the world. The question is whether they perceive that Christ is alive in their lives and wants to be made visible for them. Walls talks about Jesus Christ as God's perfect translation. But then he reminds us, you know what? We are called to be translations of God's word as well. We are lesser translations, yes. We're not perfect ones. But we are translations nonetheless. And the scripture he bases this on is from John chapter 20. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. So what might that look like? Especially for those of us who are parents or who want to encourage parents in handing on faith to their children. This is the part where I squeeze 200 pages into about five minutes, okay? Um, so I'm just going to focus on a couple of things. Uh, number one, I could have saved everybody 150 pages if I just would have said this. And I didn't. I wish I had. So I'm going to say it now. If you want your children, um, if you want the young people in your church to have a consequential faith, if you want them to see that faith actually makes a difference in the world, then do one radical thing for your faith. Do it in front of your children. And set, use words to say, I'm not doing this because I'm nice. I'd rather not do this, maybe. I'm not so nice. I'm doing this because this is what people who follow Jesus do. Now, I want to be clear about this, um, because I got in all sorts of hot water with CNN for using the word radical. <laughs> um, I don't mean that this means we all have to go to Bolivia, which is somehow what CNN thought. Um, mission is not a trip. We've already established that. Um, it's okay if you want to go to Bolivia. Knock yourself out. But in a lot of ways, I think going to Bolivia might be too easy. It's a lot harder to choose to bring your family to church on Sunday than to participate in travel soccer. It's a lot harder to join a struggling congregation than a thriving one. It's a lot harder to give away 20% of your income than to just make do with a little bit here and there that you give away. Ask Amy about the kid that she told me about last night who went to youth group and the youth group leader said, what gifts do you have that could change the world? It's a good youth group question. And she took it seriously and she thought about it and prayed about it and went home and said, I think we need to adopt a baby. So that family now has how many children? They've adopted three children. Thank the youth group. I wish I would have said stuff like that in this book. I didn't. What I did say is this, and I do stand by this. If you're going to translate the gospel with young people, the best way to do that is not with a program, but with people. 
You've probably tried to use a computer to translate something, a computer program for translation. It doesn't work out very well, does it? You know, we get what we call wooden translations. It means it doesn't seem real. Okay? If all we do to translate the gospel with teenagers is send them to a youth program, they're going to get a wooden translation of the gospel there too. It's not going to seem real. In the context of the program, it's fine. But when you get out into the world, it makes no difference. So the problem, of course, is that if, if parents use these programs to try to pass on religion to their children because they feel inadequate doing it themselves. And we've got a generation of parents who are, have pretty sketchy religious formation of their own, right? And here's the thing. Parents want to do right by their children. They don't want to be dishonest with them. And how, how can they honestly convey a faith that they're, they're not so sure about themselves? How are they going to do that? I don't know, they say. We'll drop them off at church and let them figure it out. What we forget is that even when we're not so sure about what we believe, most of us are pretty sure about what we love and about who loves us. I think the first step is helping congregations and helping parents shift the paradigm of what it means to share faith away from a paradigm of expertise and towards a paradigm of love, right? Forming young people in faith isn't about dumping information about Jesus onto them. It's about inviting them into a Christian life, walking it alongside of them, pointing out details along the way, translating our practices as we do them. Why do we share faith? It's not really because we want them to know all this stuff about God. We share faith because we want them to love God. Because we love God and we share with our children the things that we love. It's a natural thing. You can think of things that your parents or your grandparents shared with you for no other reason except they loved it and they wanted you to love it too. What are some of them? Throw some out. I'm in Texas. Somebody's got to say football, right? They didn't teach you the rules about football because they wanted you to know about football. They wanted you to root for somebody. They wanted you to love the teams they loved. What else? Throw some stuff out. Music. Great. What else? I'm sorry? I didn't hear what you said. Oh, shooting things. Thank you. I'm from New Jersey, right? It's not on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> Guns, shooting things. Great. Is this why I passed a place yesterday on the road that says the home of the bulletproof roof? I'm like, why do we need that? Anyway, all right, we're off. So... One of the things that I remember in my own childhood is my dad, do you guys have White Castles in Texas? It's this, it's, White Castle's a hamburger joint with these little tiny burgers about this big. We call them sliders because they're awful and they're greasy, you know. But they're a big, they started in Columbus, Ohio, which is near where I grew up. And um, my dad loved White Castles. And um, so every now and then I would get to go to work with him and we would stop on the way home and we would have, polish off a bag full of these sliders, with 10 of them the two of us, sitting in the front seat of the car. Today, I do not share my dad's affection for these greasy little burgers. Um, but you know, there's never a time I pass a White Castle franchise. 
that I don't remember those days with him and that I don't remember how good it felt to be loved by him. That's what we want every young person to feel when they pass a church. They may not buy everything we have to show them, but if they, every time they pass, they remember the time they spent having someone show them what it's like to be a Christian. If every time they pass it, they remember how good it feels to be loved by God, then we've taken a step towards mission as translation. And this is important. This is not an, intellect, an anti-intellectual argument, okay? Anybody have a 12-year-old? Do you know 12-year-olds? Okay. Do you know 12-year-old boys? This is the era of the band crush, right? They get a crush on a band. This is where, the, and, and where I live, everybody wears t- black T-shirts all the way through junior high, and they all have a band on them, right? This is the black T-shirt era. Okay, well, these kids did not sit down one day and say, I'm going to learn about this band, and I'm going to then fall in love with it. No, they, they fell in love with a song first. And then because they loved the song, they learned every detail they could find about the band. Some of you have been there. We learn best what we love the most, which means we need to shift the paradigm of, of trying to communicate the gospel away from a paradigm of expertise towards a paradigm of love. One final thought, though. We've got to be careful here. Because this strategy for Christian formation comes with a warning label. Translation is dangerous to the people in charge. Sociologist Talcott Parsons called every generation of adolescents barbarians at the gate. What he meant was, and he said this, we either have to tame them or they will take over. Translation gives power to the barbarians. Translation gives power to people on the outside of the congregation, on the outside of the conversation. It frees them to participate in a conversation that used to belong just to us. And these are people who don't necessarily do church our way, who don't think about God the way we think about God. Do we want them in the middle of our conversation? Let's think about that. And in case you think this is a new issue, I want you to remember the Council of Jerusalem. Who knew what was going to happen if those Gentiles get their hands on this gospel? That's what the Jews were worried about. The early Jewish church might not look the same. And so the Jewish leaders in the first century church said, I know, let's circumcise the Gentiles. Let's make them look like us, and then we'll have some assurances. Then we'll make sure that the fleas stay in our jar. But Paul did something pretty radical at that point. He said, no, 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 we can't do that. Jesus didn't make us stop being Jews to follow him. How can we make them stop being Gentiles to follow him? And that was the first time in history that we had a missional church where the doors were flung open. And Paul said, look, the gospel is for you too. So make no mistake that translation is a power move. It puts the power of the community, the power of the word of God into the hands of teenagers, for heaven's sakes. Newcomers to our tradition. Young people who don't know or care about the customs of the, or the language of our community. And what we're saying when we approach mission as translation, we are saying that we are ready to put the gospel, the very power of the word of God, into the hands of newcomers to faith. 
People who will not do things our way, who do not hear God the way we hear God. People who will not stay in our jar as a church. A missional imagination means participating in God's mission. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Not because we're always so sure of what we believe. But because we're pretty sure of who we love. And who loves us. And of course, that's why most of us are here. That's why most of us came to seminary. We weren't so sure about what we believed. We were pretty sure of who we loved and who loved us. And that's why I think this, um, actually, IT commercial might describe best what we're about. Watch. This man right here is my great-grandfather. He's the first cat herder in our family. Herding cats. Don't let anybody tell you it's easy. Anybody can herd cattle. Holding together 10,000 half-wild short hairs. Well, that's another thing altogether. Being a cat herder is probably about the toughest thing I think I've ever done. I got this one this morning right here. And if you look at his face, it's it just ripped to shreds, you know? You see the movies, you, you hear the stories, it's... I'm living a dream. Not everyone can do what we do. I wouldn't do nothing else. It ain't an easy job, but when you bring a herd into town and you ain't lost a one of them, ain't a feeling like it in the world. of Easter. The disciples were gathered in the upper room when Jesus showed up even though the doors were closed and said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And where that passage appears in Scripture is really interesting because right before that story is the story of Mary proclaiming faith in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane at the Resurrection. And right after that story is the story of Thomas, the church's story of doubt. So we've got the most faithful person in the Bible and the most doubting person in the Bible. And Jesus is right there standing in the middle of that saying, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you, the ones who are sure and the ones who aren't so sure. You are my church. And I'm sending you out in the world to do greater things than these. And the, then the text ends this way. He says, in the very next verse, it says, when he said this, he breathed on them. The way God breathed new life into Adam. The way God breathed new life into the dry bones in front of Ezekiel. Jesus breathes on the disciples, these loser disciples. The resurrected Christ breathes life into the church's dry bones. And because it's impossible to receive the breath of God without exhaling, Christ gave us, the church, the power of God to go. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.